Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this chance to study and to learn. You have told us that we have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall forget the way you've led us in the past. Um, We just want to pray that today, this time of contemplating your leading in the past might give us greater confidence in the future and might make us more the, the men and the women that you want us to be. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I start with the thought of those foolish Adventists, because that's sort of, that's sort of what, that's the sense of identity from which Seventh-day Adventism was born. Let me explain exactly what happened. You remember the Millerite movement, right? The Millerite movement was uh, just perhaps the more visible of the many different movements uh, we could clone combined into calling the great Second Advent Movement around the world, simultaneously, without collaboration, men and women studied their Bibles, particularly the prophecies, and came to the conclusion that Jesus was coming again um, sometime around 1840s, in the early 1840s. Um, this was not just the Millerite Movement. And um, in, our, in the Adventist Heritage class that I teach, we explore some of those other Uh, movements around the world. One of the most fascinating to me was a story told by an Irish priest who went to what we would call uh, sort of like the the Eastern Soviet Union, um, Southern Soviet Union, I guess, more like the Stans, that area, the regions. And there was a, the, the Irish missionary met an Orthodox priest. And when the, when the Irish missionary met the priest, the priest asked him the question, uh, so when do you think the, the Lord is going to come? And the priest had no response. The Orthodox priest was quite puzzled by this, since he was coming as a missionary, how he wouldn't know that when the Lord was going to come. And he actually, asks, he actually commented, I thought that everyone with a Bible should know when the Lord is going to come. And he went on to explain to this Roman Catholic Irish priest that missionary, that he believed that the Lord was going to come, the world was going to end around 1843. Now, what's interesting about this story is it was published in an Irish magazine in 1821, um, long before William Miller was ever preaching. And it's just one story out of many, many stories that we can look to, to recognize that God was working around the world simultaneously. William Miller just happens to be the name that's attached to the movement today. And uh, so we call it the Millerite Movement, particularly here in North America, the Millerite Movement. Now, I want us to just share a little bit of an insight into what the Millerite Movement was like. What would it have been to go to a Millerite meeting? And um, this was a report from the pastor of the local Christian Connection Church in Portland, Maine. Now, this is of interest to us because this is the same meetings uh, that, that Ellen White went to as a young girl. Um, and when, um, when Miller came to the, to the Portland church, it was actually the Methodist church that he spoke at, um, it, he continued there for 13 days. And then this pastor is writing him, Lorenzo Fleming, is writing him a report of what's going on. The good work has been progressing firmly. I should think somewhere near 200 have professed conversion in our meetings since you left. And the good work is spreading all over the city and in the country all around the city. 
Such a time was never known here. A number of grog shops have been broken up and converted into little meeting houses. One or two gambling establishments have also been broken up. Have also broken up. Little prayer meetings have been set up in almost every part of the city. Many opposers begin to acknowledge that there is a work of God here. Now, this is the one account from Portland. There can be many other accounts we could we could read similar. They would almost sound the same, describing the same situation. When William Miller came to town, it wasn't as though they just got a doctrinal, um, you know, debriefing from William Miller on what the doctrine of the Second Advent was. No. There was a spiritual revival that was going on that was the core of the Millerite movement. And that's something I think we need to make very, very clear. This was a spiritual revival. Anytime you see uh, bars being turned into meeting houses, um, theaters being turned into churches, uh, other you know, gambling establishments and others, this was, this was simply a moving of the Holy Spirit. Now, some might say, well, was it just out of fear? I'm supposing some may have been just out of fear, but many people were coming to a closer knowledge of Jesus. Many people were being drawn closer to Jesus, and we can just read that throughout the different reports. Ellen White says in Life Sketches, page 60, My heart was full of glad expectation. With diligent searching of heart and humble confessions, we came prayerfully up to the time of expectation. Every morning we felt that it was our first work to secure the evidence that our lives were right before God. We prayed much with and for one another. If clouds obscured our minds, we dared not rest or sleep till they were swept away by the consciousness of our acceptance with the Lord. Do you understand what's going on here? Do you understand how these people are looking to the second advent? And again, some people might criticize them and say, well, they're just because they're afraid Jesus is going to come. No, maybe some of them had that original motivation. But what I see as I read these types of passages is they had come to love Jesus. And they wanted nothing more than to have a right relationship with Him and to be ready for Him when He comes. You see, there's a difference between being an Adventist because you're afraid that Jesus is coming soon, so you better get ready. And being an Adventist because you love Jesus and you're hoping He's going to come soon. Do you understand the difference between those two groups of Adventists? The Adventists, or the Millerites, I might say, at this point in our, in our discussion, the Millerites, I believe, for the most part, love Jesus and long for His quick return. And there's a couple of reasons why I believe that. We'll look at that a little later when we look at Revelation chapter 10. But Revelation chapter 10 describes this Millerite period as a sweet-in-the-mouth experience. If it was just out of fear or dread of the second coming, I don't think it would be a sweet-in-the-mouth experience. This was a time when people drew very close to Jesus. Um, the sweet-in-the-mouth experience. The, 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 the hope was that Jesus was coming very soon, not the fear, the hope. And so when an Adventist minister, you know, compelled by, um, by a group of, of believers who wanted to be ready for the October return of Jesus, and he went and just a few weeks, 10 days, 12 days earlier, before the, uh, the great disappointment, he was constrained by these individuals to baptize them. They cut, they cut that hole in the ice, you know, two or three feet of ice on the river, and they baptized these individuals. And, of course, they were in and out pretty quickly. He spent an extended amount of time there, and he very quickly got deathly ill and died. And his little kids, of course, they were sad, but they weren't really sad because they had the blessed hope. They were looking forward to Jesus coming. And it was just a few days, just a, just a week or so now. And we'll be reunited with our loved ones. There was, a, there was a positive optimism in the Millerite movement from everything that I can gather. 
a positive optimism. So we could, we could, if we were to explore or, or try to define the identity of the Millerite movement up to this time, up to 1844, it's largely a revival based on the study of prophecy. Um, William Miller was not just someone who preached the prophecies of Daniel. I mean, we're familiar with his, you know, his charts and all that. So it's, we, we, send, we tend to think of him as a sort of the scholar academic guy that's up there um, you know, explaining the, the, the different symbols of Daniel and Revelation. And he did that. But he was someone who appealed to hearts. He was someone who asked for decisions. Um, he, was, he's, he was called affectionately by many who came to his meetings, Father Miller. Um, because of the way, if the meeting house was full and there was only a seat here on the front, he saw some elderly person coming in, he would go down and he would help them in and help them find their seats. And he was an everyday person. He wasn't a preacher, he was a farmer. And everyday people listened to him and he pled with them, pled with them and made these appeals that were so heart-stirring for them to give their hearts to Jesus. And so it's, I think it's only fair that we characterize the Millerite movement as a revival. Um, and that's, that's uh, a revival that, yes, was based on the study of prophecy. But there was a focus on spiritual prep, preparation and the confession of sin. There was, you remember what, what Ellen White's account was? We, we wanted every day to make sure that our hearts were right with Jesus. Before we went to bed... We wanted to make sure we had made, our, 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 made anything right with our friends or with our neighbors, with Jesus. And even when we got up, we wanted our, the assurance of salvation um, from God's Word. Uh, so there's a focus on spiritual preparation and the confession of sin. There wasn't a lot of, besides the prophecies, besides the idea that Jesus was coming in 1843 or 1844, there was not a lot of, of new theological ideas the, uh, the Millerite movement largely was influenced by a number of other movements. Of course, the Protestant Reformation. It was influenced by the Pietist movement largely, and it was influenced by Charles Finney and his revivals. Um, but this was the type of atmosphere in which it was being accomplished. Um, one of the things that they did see very clearly is that they came to see themselves as typified by the parable of the ten virgins. You're, you're familiar with that parable. We're not going to go into great length in studying it here today. But they began to see themselves as being typified by the ten virgins. And there was, there was a tearing time. Remember that? And um, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And um, as they, in their experience, First expected Jesus to come in the, the beginning of the 2300th year, um, sometime in, in uh, the, the fall of 1843, and then the spring of 1844, and then finally the fall of 1844. There were these tearing times where they, they believed they, they were being, they were being um, prophesied, I guess you might say. They were fulfilling the parable of the ten virgins and the message was the message was the bridegroom is coming go out to meet him so in their understanding their work was about over 1843 1844 was going to be the end of the message they were looking forward to that and everything they were doing was building up to that time little did they know that that's not the way it was in reality at all their message would be just beginning as the uh, as the disappointment came so we all know what happened as the, uh, as the day of October 22 dawned and these people who were 
in love with Jesus. They were part of a revival movement. They saw themselves as part of the ten virgins. They were studying prophecies. Um, when they went out and they, they waited, they waited for Jesus to come. And um, at any minute now, they thought Jesus was going to part the heavens and the sky would be filled with chariots of fire and holy angels and Jesus would be coming. And the day dragged on and I suppose some of them had taken some food out and, and maybe a picnic. They were all straining their eyes, watching the east, hoping to be the first ones to see the cloud. And, and then the sun began to set. But it was okay because there was still time. It still was the 22nd. They were sure Jesus would come. They were that sure. They were so sure, friends. They were so sure that they had, many of them had sold everything they, they owned. Many of them had left their crops unharvested in their fields. Many of them had put every penny they had into telling others, helping others be ready. Um, this wasn't just a flippant little Bible study they'd had. This was, they were passionate about it. This was something they were very sure about. They had studied and they had debated. And, and you know what? One of the things I appreciate about the Millerites, they had been so open to have criticism that even their critics, Smith and Campbell and others who wrote against William Miller's interpretation of the end of the world, um, they published their articles too. And in the, in the Millerite journals, they published discussions because they were trying to understand. They were trying to make sure they were right. And if their arguments couldn't stand the test of Scripture, they didn't want them, right? And um, so they were very, 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 very confident. And then, the, of course, the Millerite movement ended in disappointment. Can you imagine what that would have been like? go back to your home, if you had a home, Um, to face your neighbors who always had said you're crazy. Um, Notice what it says in Ellen White's biography, The Early Years, Volume 1, page 60. Through the early winter months of 1844 to 1845, the Advent believers in Portland, Maine, and in fact elsewhere, seldom smiled. On the streets, they were taunted and ridiculed by former friends and acquaintances. They often had to meet the assertion, you were a set of fools and fanatics, or I told you so. The uniform testimony of those who passed through the experience was that only those who had endured it could realize the depth of disappointment and its reality. They fully believed that probation had closed and Jesus would come at almost any moment. But as the days stretched into weeks and Jesus did not come, their faith began to waver. By December, most of the believers in the Portland area had abandoned their confidence in the integrity of the October 22 date. Every passing day drove home the conviction that nothing had taken place at that time. So this is what was happening And you should be aware of some of these terms. They believed that Jesus was going to leave the holy place on his way to appearing in the east and shut the door of the temple, meaning the probation of man would be closed. They believed what what was known as the shut door. Notice it refers to that here. They fully believed that probation had closed and Jesus would come at any moment. The longer Jesus didn't come, the more doubts came into their minds. Well, maybe probation hasn't closed. 
maybe that door is still open. You see, they didn't understand what the symbolism was meaning. He was shutting a door into the holy place and going to the most holy place, not shutting a door into the temple and going to earth. But more and more began to realize that the door wasn't shut, meaning probation wasn't closed. More and more they began to accept that, you know what, maybe October 22 was just a big mistake after all. Maybe it was, maybe their critics had been right, the people that made fun of them. And every day, every passing day only strengthened that growing sentiment that they were, had all been duped and deceived. Now, can you try to put yourself into their minds now? Can you try to see some of their identity at this point? Their identity at this point is, is pretty much of a people that feels they were wrong and mistaken. That they made a big mistake. They didn't know why, they didn't know how, but they had made a mistake. And even Ellen White, she writes in letter 3, 1847, at the time I had the vision of the midnight cry, that's her first vision in December of 1844, I had given it up in the past and thought it future as also most of the band had. Now, Again, I've got to interpret that a little bit because what, what she said is I, she, when they came to believe that the shut door was still in the future, that probation hadn't closed, still in the future, they're necessarily denying that anything had happened in October 22. That's what, that's what it, when she says it's still in the future, she's denying that anything had happened in 18, uh, October 22nd. So there's this sense, even among uh, the, the, the diehard believers in the, in the New England states, that October 22 was simply a mistake. I had given it up as being in the past and thought it future as well as most of the band had. This experience became quite general, and by April 1845, the larger part of those who had been in the Advent movement and had not immediately repudiated their experience came to conclude that there had been a mistake in the date and they must look for the t- fulfillment of the 2300-day prophecy at some time yet to come. So you understand what's going on in Adventism. There's a group of people who, October 23, were out of there. Like they said, this was all just a bunch of baloney. You know, we're not, we're, we're, this was, we were duped, we're deceived, we're out of here. There are others who said, we know God was leading us, but it's, you know, we must just have made a mistake, something must have happened, maybe probation closed, but he's still on his way. And the longer time went, the more people decided, you know what, October 22 must not have been the close of probation. The door wasn't shut. Perhaps it's still in the future. Now, this group of people, most of these people would eventually become what we call today the Advent Christian Church. Um, they would still be looking for the coming of Jesus. Um, but around New England, this was the sentiment. The sentiment was... October 22 was a mistake. This was, a, this was all just a big mistake. So there's that story of the women praying that morning when Ellen had her first vision, Ellen Harmon. 17-year-old girl, um, December morning, South Portland, gathered with four others. And it says, as the five women were praying that December morning in South Portland, Oregon, one question was uppermost in their minds. Was the experience through which they had just passed in 1844, six weeks earlier or so, one in which God led? Was prophecy fulfilled on October 22? 
Or was their experience a delusion without sound scriptural support and without the leadings of the Spirit of God? In their hearts they cried out, Why? Oh, why were we disappointed? This is what they were praying about. This is what they were agonizing about. And it's at this point, at this prayer meeting, that God decided to send a message through this young 17-year-old girl. And this is a very interesting part of the story because while we know about the vision and all, we, we often haven't really spent much time to think about the setting in which it came. Most of the Advent believers were either already saying that October 22 was a mistake. Not, I'm not talking about the ones that are, have left the movement. I'm talking about the ones that are still, the, they still consider themselves Advent Millerites, whatever. They, they're, they're growing numbers saying it's a mistake it's not, it, nothing happened on October 22. The door wasn't shut. Uh, we just move on, look for another date. And Ellen White is given this vision, which is a picture of the Advent people traveling to the promised land, to the city of God, right? You remember the story? She's looking around in the world and she doesn't see God's people anywhere. And the angel that's giving her this vision to her, whatever, says, look again and look where? Look a little higher. And there above the world, on a pathway ascending above the world, there was the Advent band, the Millerite believers. And they were ascending this pathway, and in front of them was Jesus. You can, you can see Jesus there, and He's leading them along. That would in itself be comforting, wouldn't it? But there's something that's very, very, very critical in this vision. And that is there's a bright light behind them. Now, she knew what Jesus was. I mean, she knew Jesus. She, she was comforted to know that Jesus was leading his people. That's good. But what's this bright light behind God's people? And the angel told her, it's the midnight cry. Ah. So the whole message of October 22 wasn't a big mistake. It's depicted by God, by the angel to Ellen as a bright light shining behind them, illuminating their pathway forward. You see, they thought, they thought that this October 22 was going to be the end of their journey. This vision teaches Ellen and those who she shared the vision with that the midnight cry and the, the message of October 22 and, and the whole movement to prepare to meet the bridegroom was only the beginning of the Advent movement, not the end of it. And that the bright light behind them was not to be disregarded or discarded, but it was God's, it was in fact in God's plan and in God's design, and it was God's message. By that vision given to Ellen Harmon in December in the Haynes home, but that vision presented an entirely different picture than what was currently being thought among the Millerite believers, the Advent believers. The, uh, God had led His people. The midnight cry, a phrase that is noted, grew out of the application of the parable of the ten virgins to October 22, 1844, shown as a light upon the pathway of the Advent believers who are making their way to the heavenly Canaan. If they trusted this light and kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, they would safely enter into their reward. Now, I want you to understand something here. This first vision that's given by God to Ellen White was not a theological vision. You can draw some inferences from it, of course. But there's no explanation for how 
the disappointment had happened. There's no explanation for what the interpretation had gone wrong, why they had had this mistake. It is a vision intended simply to change the identity, the way the Advent believers were thinking of themselves post-disappointment. Does that make sense? The main impact of the first vision of Ellen White was to tell the Advent Christians, Advent believers, 1844 was not a mistake. October 22 was not a disaster. It's depicted as a bright light shining upon the pathway. It's not a mistake. Now, that, the answer to how it happened, why it happened, that would come later, and it wouldn't come from Ellen White. She would be confirming it, but it wouldn't come from Ellen White. Ellen White was not the one who originated any of our fundamental teachings or our beliefs. Um, God always worked through men and women studying the scriptures to come to those understandings. And often with no input from the servant of the Lord until after they had already come to a conclusion, then God would use a vision to confirm it and there would be total satisfaction and peace about it. So the first given... First vision given by God to Ellen White was to communicate an accurate identity to the people of God. Now, the reason, one of the main reasons that Ellen did not want to go out and share this vision was because she knew this, this very part of it flew in the face of the popular opinion at the time. I used to, I used to think it was just because she thought, you know, I'm shy, I don't like, you know, stage fright. It specifically was because she knew people would not agree with it. They had concluded. They were believing. Their sense of identity was now that they were mistaken. And she was going to have to reach right into their very core of who they had come to view themselves as with a message that says you weren't mistaken. God had a purpose for it. Um, Notice what, she's, what it says in her biography. What would this 17-year-old girl who had been given a vision do? A vision that presented information contrary to her own thinking, contrary to what was now held by the Advent believers, believers generally in the Portland area. In recounting the experience two years later in her letter to Joseph Bates, she told of how God instructed her to deliver the message to the band. She also related her reaction. I shrank from it. I was young. And I thought they would not receive it from me. In fact, that, that, um, that it, was, it was very soon afterwards she was going to um, have an opportunity to share this vision with a group of believers gathering in her parents' home. There was a group coming together to have a prayer meeting. I think it was a Wednesday night or something like that. She split. She went and visited like a brother-in-law or somebody up, in, up, in, um, up north, far, farther north of Portland, um, I can't remember the, the name now, um, Poland Springs. She went up to Poland Springs because she did not want to share this vision. And the man of the house that she was staying with, with a friend, I don't remember his name, but I remember the story. The man of the house came to her and said, you know, like, why are you here? Somehow he was picking up on this idea that she was there because she didn't want to be somewhere else, you know. And he didn't know anything about this vision. And he actually asked her, confronted her, are you, are you trying to avoid a duty? And she was not happy <laughs> uh, because she did not want, and she didn't want to tell him either because she assumed that he was of the opinion that the door wasn't shut, that 
probation was still going on and that nothing happened in October 22. Um, and she writes all about it um, in her own life story. So this is, this is a major part of who the Millerites at this point were thinking they were. They, were, they had an identity as a failure. And God sent a message through a 17-year-old Ellen Harmon that the disappointment had not been a failure, that God was still working and he would work through it. So let's look a little bit about the, at the identity that's beginning to develop here. Um, the, the Millerite message had not been a horrendous mistake as many had resigned themselves to believe. The midnight cry was a bright light at the beginning of the path. And October 22 marked the beginning of their journey rather than the end of it. Now here's this 17-year-old Ellen Harmon with all of New England, you know, they didn't have like the internet. She didn't put, in, she couldn't like post her vision on her Facebook page. She couldn't make a video. She couldn't send out emails. The only way to get the message out really for Ellen Harmon is to go and talk to people. That's it. They didn't have any money to print. They didn't have any radio, television, anything. They, the only way was to go and print. I mean, I mean go and tell. And so what, what's a 17 year old going to do? You know, I mean, no money, no, no ability to travel. She ends up going with, I think it was her brother, went over to New York to deliver a horse they had sold to this young man named James White. And um, that was the first time I think she remembered meeting him. He remembered her, actually, because she was such a dedicated, you know, pre-disappointment believer there in Portland, Maine. You know, as a 15-year-old, she was, she was making appointments with her friends who didn't know Jesus. And systematically, one by one, praying for them, pleading with them until every single one of her friends had given their hearts to Jesus. And that had impressed. This dedication had impressed James White. Of course, he was an old man. He was like 21, you know. And, she, and so he was a number of years older, three or four years older than, than, than Ellen at this time. But here, she, the only way she can get this message out to all this scattered groups of people... They don't have any churches meeting on Sunday because they don't have, there's no such thing as a Millerite church. They all got kicked out of their churches. So how do, you, how do you go and talk to them? You have to find people that are having prayer meetings and inviting their other Millerite friends to come together. And it's sort of like a small group at a, small, at a time, a little bit here, a little bit there. She's trying to get the message out. What's the message? The message is October 22 wasn't a disaster. It wasn't a mistake. It's really, it's, it's, the midnight cry is the bright light that begins our movement, shining along our pathway. And I, I spend all this time talking about it because still today, in Adventism, there tends to be a little bit of an embarrassment about the midnight cry and about October 22. And I just want to say that I believe, and we're going to get more into this as we go through the developing identity of Adventism, but I believe that if we turn our backs or if we are ashamed of what God did through the midnight cry, October 22nd, we're in deep water. I believe that this is a very... God didn't give her this first vision telling her this for nothing. I believe this is a part of what God wants Adventists to know. Do people make fun of us? Yes. Did people make fun of the disciples after the crucifixion? Yes. Okay? Um, we could spend the whole hour comparing the great disappointment at the cross and the great disappointment at October 22. Both of them came about from the preaching of prophecy that wasn't completely understood. Both of them preached the right time but the wrong event. 
Both of them under, misunderstood some little part. They didn't understand that when Jesus came, he was coming as the Messiah, but he wasn't coming to rule on, da on David's throne. He was coming as a lamb to the slaughter. But he came, they, they were preaching the right time, right? The disciples, they went around preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Were they preaching the right time, the right, this right Savior? Yes. But the wrong, the wrong event took place, the one they didn't expect. So I believe I am no more ashamed of October 22 than I am ashamed of the disappointment of the cross. See, for us, we don't think of this way because we're, we've grown up in a society that sort of thinks positively of the cross. Um, when Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of, of Christ for this power of God unto salvation. When Paul says, I determine not to know anything of Jesus, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You have to understand what he was saying also was an embrace, he was embracing a tragic, disastrous beginning to the Christian church, at least from a human aspect. You know what I'm saying? Um, he was embracing the great disappointment of the cross and saying, this is what we're going to glory in. This is what we're going to glory in. So contrary to um, revisionist historians who believe Ellen White invented the sanctuary message to save face, we're going to look now at how that sanctuary message came to be understood. So Ellen, Ellen had received a vision essentially affirming the identity of Adventism of the, the, the authenticity of the Millerite movement and of the loud cry specifically, October 22, that message. Um, but the second question had not been answered, the question those five ladies were praying about as they met on that um, South Portland home that morning. The second question was why? What, what happened? What went wrong? What was the misunderstanding in their, their Bible study? And so... Now we're prepared to understand the significance of what Hiram Edson saw and told on the morning of October 23rd. Now this is the day after the great disappointment. I don't suppose they'd gotten much sleep that night. Um, they waited up till midnight after all. And then they were so heartbroken that you can't imagine them really resting much. Um, besides that, what are they going to do? I mean, their whole life is just turned upside down. Edson... Um, lived in New York State. And on the night of October 22nd, he with other Adventists had been waiting for the Lord to come until midnight passed and their disappointment became a certainty. They prayed at dawn for an explanation of their disappointment. And then we'll let him take the story and tell it from there. After breakfast, I said to one of my brethren, let us go and see, and I encourage some of our, and encourage some of our brethren. We started, and while passing through a large field, and by the way, it seems as though they were passing through the field simply because they didn't want to be seen on the street. Talk about identity. They didn't want to see anybody. They wanted to go the back way into their friend's home, try to encourage somebody. We were passing through a large field. I was stopped about midway in the field. Heaven seemed open to my view, and I saw distinctly and clearly that instead of our high priest coming out of the most holy of the heavenly sanctuary to come to earth on the 10th day of the seventh month, at the end of the 2300 days, that he for the first time entered on that day the second apartment of the sanctuary, and that he had a work to perform in the most holy before coming to this earth, that he came to the marriage at that time, as mentioned in the parable of the ten virgins. In other words, the ancient of days to the Ancient of Days to receive a kingdom, dominion, and glory, and we must wait for His return from the wedding. This was a revolutionary thought. Now it's debated still in Adventist 
um, you know, historians don't agree on whether we view this, this uh, experience of Hiram Edson crossing the field as a divine revelation, as in a, a vision. Some people believe that he saw a vision, sort of like you know, Ellen White or Daniel, one of the other um, who was given a vision. Some people say, well, he doesn't, he's not very clear about that. It could have just been an epiphany, you know. He said it was, it's, it's as if heaven was opened and I, I saw what was going on in heaven. Um, I don't think it's a matter to really debate. It doesn't matter, does it? What matters is for the first time, for the very first time, this is the morning after, for the very first time, an Adventist saw another understanding of what happened or what was to happen at the end of the prophecy than they'd always assumed. They had just assumed that the sanctuary to be cleansed was the sanctuary of earth. They had just assumed that. Um, now, it wasn't because they hadn't thought about it. Let me tell you, Campbell and Smith and some of the critics of, the, of William Miller and, 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 and um, Litch and, and Fitch had, um, had said, for example, that the, the sanctuary to be cleansed was the sanctuary in Jerusalem, that there was going to be a rebuilding of the temple, that the, the, the Muslims were going to be driven out of the holy city, and that there was going to be a restoration. So there, was, there were other views of what the cleansing of the sanctuary was. Those didn't happen either, did they? Um, so, for the first time, there came an understanding into an Adventist mind of what could have happened. And um, this is recorded here from Hiram Edson. While I was standing in the midst of the field, my comrade passed on, almost beyond speaking distance. So they had been walking together. You get the picture? They were walking together. And then Hiram Edson just stops transfixed in the middle of the field as he's having this vision or epiphany, whatever it is, a revelation. And his his colleague keeps walking until he's almost beyond where he could hear him, beyond speaking distance, before he realized that Edson, Hiram Edson had stopped. And he, he stopped and inquired why I was stopping so long. I replied, the Lord was answering our morning prayer by giving light with regard to our disappointment. And so this, this, uh, this came, became a new vein of study for the Millerite people. Of course, over in New York, where Hiram Edson was, how was he going to get the message out? He couldn't put it on the, on the Millerite website. He had to go and tell people, or in his case, he had a little more access to be able to print it. And, um, but Ellen White over in, in um, Portland, Maine, um, now it seems like those two locations should be pretty close, you know, but in those days, that was good ways away, you know. Sort of like when they went out west and moved to Michigan, you know. Uh, yeah. Um, Edson discussed his view with O.R.L. Crozier and F.B. Hahn, with whom, says he, I was closely associated. The three were at that time publishing a little Adventist paper called The Day Dawn. In that paper, they published this new view, and The Day Dawn was sent out bearing the light on the sanctuary subject. Like most of the short-lived Adventist papers of that time, The Day Dawn probably had a very small circulation and thus made a negligible impact on the main body of Adventist believers. However, the issue containing this view of the sanctuary cleansing fell into the hands of elders James White and Joseph Bates, two Adventist ministers in the East who readily endorsed the view. And Crozier would later publish in, I think it's the Daystar, in the much, much more widely distributed Millerite or early Adventist paper, um, the, his views as well. Um, 
Ellen would write in 1847 about how in the middle of February 1845, she had a similar understanding. Only this was a vision that was given to her. She writes about it. Um, the view about the bridegroom's coming I had about the middle of February 1845. While in Exeter, Maine, and meeting with Israel Damon, James, and others, many of them uh, did not believe in a shut door. In other words, they believed when she says that, she's saying they meant that nothing happened in, 1840, in October 22 and that that event was still to be fulfilled. Okay, um, that's, that's what she is describing. It was then that I had a view of Jesus rising from his mediatorial throne and going to the holiest as bridegroom to receive his kingdom. They were all deeply interested in the view. They all said it was entirely new to them. The Lord worked in mighty power, setting the truth home to their hearts. Previous to this, I had no light on the coming of the bridegroom, but had expected him to come to this earth to deliver his people on the 10th day of the seventh month. I did not hear a lecture or word in any way relating to the bridegroom's going to the holiest. So what's she writing? This is, this is, this is uh, several months after, of course, Higher Medicine and, and the Day Dawn um, paper. But she's saying, I hadn't heard anyone say a word about the bridegroom coming to the wedding not, and the holy, most holy place not coming to the earth. And um, this was a new thing for me that God showed to me. It was a revelation that was a new revelation. Uh, she writes again how she, she, she saw it depicted. I saw the Father rise from the throne and a, a flaming chariot go into the Holy of Holies within the veil and did sit. I saw a cloudy chariot with wheels like flaming fire. Angels were all about the chariot as it came where Jesus was. He stepped into it and was born to the holiest where the Father sat. Then I beheld Jesus as he was before the Father, a great high priest. So Jesus, she sees this judgment scene taking place similar to what was described in Daniel chapter 7. And she, she saw that's what happened on October 22. Um, that was the, the transition that was taking place. So this understanding of the work of Jesus, just beginning in the most holy place, radically changed the early Adventist conception of themselves and their work. Um, the marriage was just beginning. Um, this, wasn't a, this wasn't the termination or the end of their work. It was the beginning of their work. It's a, it's a, you, you can understand if you're going through trying to grapple the, 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 with the, the um, how should I say it, with the ramifications of these new truths you're learning. It's changing the very way you perceive yourself, the way you perceive the Advent movement, perceive, perceive your work to do. Um, so this brings us down to the year of 1846 for the First definite evidence of a crystallizing of convictions and united thinking on the doctrine of the sanctuary among those who had become the pioneers of Adventism. In 1846, O.R. Crozier, who we mentioned earlier, published an amplified statement, an expanded version of his Dadon article, in a well-known Millerite paper, uh, the Daystar, thus giving the doctrine a certain publicity and prominence that it had not received that time. 1846 is a very pivotal year for Adventism and Adventist history. Uh, 1846, not only did the doctrine of the sanctuary gain its prominence for the first time, um, is in the same year that there appeared the first published writings of Ellen White. So up to that time, there had only been a, um, you know, she'd only been traveling around and speaking. Now she would actually have um, some of her writings published. And in August of 1846, um, she became the wife of James White. Alan Harmon became Ellen White. 
And in that year, J Joseph Bates and James White first met. Joseph Bates, James White, and Ellen White would become the most influential of the early Adventists who were left of the Adventists to organize themselves into a group of believers that had a, a, common, a common understanding. Um, significant scriptural discoveries were also being made. Um, the early Adventists now began to see themselves as uh, fulfilling Revelation chapter 10. Um, and this must have been a very comforting prophecy to understand for the first time. When they realized that the little book Daniel being eaten um, was sweet in the mouth and bitter in the stomach, they understood all about it. And that by itself would be enough to say, hey, it's going to be all right, you know, God, God's still with us. But then at the end of chapter 10, what does it say? You must prophesy again before many multitudes, nations, tongues, and kings. And so there's a, still a work for them to do. They had made a mistake, but there's still a work for them to do. Also, we see Revelation 14, three angels' messages. They began to understand the, these as a summary of the end-time message or movement that God had predicted. They had experienced them. Um, the, the, the message of the first angel, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. They had seen that working of the first angel in their experience, getting ready for the great disappointment. Um, worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. They began to understand that these, these angels had been being fulfilled also in their midst. I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty crazy exciting to see Bible prophecy written 2,000 years before you were born describing what you're experiencing. Wouldn't that be? Or should I say, isn't it? Yeah? You see, can you imagine Cyrus being approached by the believers, maybe Daniel, whoever it was, that approached him and said, look, my friend Isaiah, wasn't really his friend because he was gone a long time before, but this prophet from my country, Isaiah, he described how you're going to conquer Babylon and he named you by name before your grandpa was born. And I can just imagine Cyrus sort of getting goosebumps, you know. I mean, this is an ancient scroll from the temple in Jerusalem and this is proof. And it happened. I mean, he knows it had to. It came from Jerusalem long before the Babylon fell. You know, I mean, there's no way of just making this up. Um, that's the type of goosebumps these Millerite believers began to have as they recognized for the first time that Revelation 10 describes us. Revelation 14 describes us. Um, this, is, this is really happening the way God said it, and He's using us. That's a pretty thrilling, thrilling thing. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.